Lockridge said this, and, and I cannot do it in his preaching style, so forgive me on this, but he says this. He says, he came from nowhere because there wasn't anywhere for him to come from. And coming from nowhere, he stood on nothing. And the reason he had to stand on nothing was there was no, nothing, nowhere for him to stand. And standing on nothing, he reached out to where there was nowhere to reach, and he caught something when there was nothing to catch, and hung something on nothing and told it to stay there. Standing on nothing, he took the hammer of his own will, and he struck the anvil of his omnipotence, and sparks flew, and he caught them on the tips of his fingers, and flung them out into space, and bedecked the heavens with stars. And nobody said a word. The reason nobody said anything was there wasn't anybody there to say anything. So God said to himself, that's good. If God can create everything out of nothing, if God can create you and me and the entire universe, then God can do anything. There is nothing that God can do short of contradicting his own character. So why is it so hard to trust him? I think intellectually speaking, we know who God is, but it is so hard to stand with him when you're standing all alone. It is so hard to trust him when everyone else has given up on you, when no one is there to stand beside you. It's hard to believe his promises when there's no one there, when it feels like God has forgotten you. Is it then that you remember that God's created everything out of nothing, that God holds the entire universe in the palm of his hands? Well, we've been going through Abraham's life and his interaction with God specifically and rightfully so found in the covenant that God made with Abraham. What we're seeing over and over, and this may have surprised you if you haven't studied Genesis because we think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and all of those guys as being very righteous, very holy, very obedient, very good. And then we look up the story of Abraham and we often see the exact opposite. That, that Abraham continued to sin, that he continued to make mistakes, that he continued to do wrong things. And he continued to do things that almost seemed like he was trying to test God, trying to make God mad. And at every turn, God says, you're mine, I'll keep you. And we keep reading this. And we keep saying, well, I can't believe that God would do that. And then we come to the key verse in this passage. And if we're honest with ourselves, one of the key verses in all of Scripture is here. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Gosh, I needed that. I don't know about you. I needed that. This, this has been a difficult year for all of us, I think. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is COVID-19 too hard for the Lord to deal with? Our friends and family who, who turn from us, uh, is that too hard for the Lord to deal with? No. See, what's happening in this text, Genesis chapter 18, occurred just a short time after Genesis 17, probably just a few months. 
And Abraham and Sarah are at the lowest point they've been at, that, that they've committed this horrible sin against Hagar, their servant, and they're still waiting for a promised son. But then Abraham has an encounter with God. And the God gives him encouragement. Abraham failed over and over again, but God never failed Abraham. And, and, and listen to me, every single one of us in this room will fail God over and over again. We'll fail our spouse, we'll fail our, our kids, we'll fail ourselves, we'll fail our job, our employers, we'll fail our church. God never does. It's another reason why we don't rest in our own goodness. Because our goodness is not good enough. So we cling to the goodness of God because God does never fail. God never fails us and he never has and he never will. And here in Abraham's story, God has never failed him. And then we come to chapter 18. And it seems like this story that was unfolding just kind of stopped. Reading this as literature, you, you would read the first 17 chapters, and, and it seems like the, the point of the story has almost reached its, its climax. It almost reached its end, its peak. And then chapter 18 comes, and this is a strange passage. Again, we're seeing these strange things happening. But the chapters that we're studying, 18, 19, and 20, over the next few weeks, um, they're not out of place. In fact, they further the story of God's faithfulness, his grace, and his righteousness. In chapter 18, we see a picture of how God uses Abraham to bless the nations. In chapter 19, we see how seriously God takes sin and what his judgment will be like. And in chapter 20, God gives grace to Abraham even in his sin. And what's been the most enjoyable for me, and I hope for you too, it comes in two different things. First, I'm seeing more and more of how the Bible is so woven together. Something that I missed when I just read select passages of Scripture, taken in their context of the entirety of God's redemptive story, we see how consistent God has been throughout the ages. The second thing that I've learned to appreciate is how the entire Bible points to Christ. Now, I know I've preached that every single week, but some of these passages are a little harder to preach. Where is Jesus in this? In just the first 17 chapters of Genesis, though, we've seen how Jesus is the clear subject of the entire book. All the grace that God has shown Abraham is a picture of the grace that God gives to his children. Uh, children. And the judgment that is coming in chapter 18 is what happens to everyone who dies in their sin. And one of these ways that we see this interconnectedness of Scripture is found in verse 1 of chapter 18 today. It says this, And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Flip back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Look at the difference in what we're reading. Adam and Eve, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Do you see the, the difference here? It's a, it's a complete opposite happening here. Genesis 3, 8 happened after Adam and Eve sinned, but before God pronounced judgment. Then, post-fall, chapter 18 describes the Lord appearing in the heat of the day. It's telling a story to us, the readers. The world is not what it once was. 
Continue looking at verses two through five here. He, Abraham, lifted his eyes up and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Who are these three men? Certainly representatives of God, of God, um, either that or ghost, and I don't think that, uh, but they just appeared out of nowhere that Abraham was just sitting there. He looks up and all of a sudden right in front of him, there's three figures standing there. Who are they? There are some differences of opinion on this, but Abraham recognized that there was something different about these guys. He ran to them. He offered hospitality to them. Now get this picture in your head. Guy's almost 100 years old, and he runs, and he offers hospitality. Keep in mind, he's kind of a king here. What all that he's done, he has a large plot of land, big land. He's got lots of servants. He's got over 300 men who fought for him. He conquered kings. He defeated the invading armies. But even though he can brag about this covenant that God has made with him, he still recognizes the greatness of these visitors. He recognizes that they are superior to him. Similar to what we see in Daniel chapter 10 in the description of the angel. It's also similar to what we see of Jesus in Revelation 1. In Daniel 10, the angel reflects the glory of Jesus. And here in Genesis 18, these three men reflect the glory of God. Many would say, and this is what I believe, that these three guests were the Lord and two angels. Verse 9 says, they said, so there was more than one, obviously. But verse 10 says, the Lord said, singular. Well, as Abraham was sitting at the tent of the door, he looked up and he saw these guys appearing out of nowhere. Now, this has happened in other parts of the Old Testament, but it's still strange. If you came to me and said, hey, hey, hey Ryan, we, I was standing there one day and Looked down, and then when I looked up, there was three guys standing in front of me. That's strange. That's not normal. That doesn't happen every day. It shouldn't, at least. And this is a passage with a few different interpretations, but I believe that these were angels standing beside a visible manifestation of the Lord. The fact that Abraham bowed to these men, and, and this could be interpreted as even worship these men. He, he bowed in his worship to them, brings me to the belief that the Lord was there. But no matter what one believes about these three and who they were, it's very clear that they're important. Abraham's reaction to them shows that he esteemed them more than he esteemed himself. So what does he do? What what would you do if the Lord showed up with two angels? Well, naturally, we'd all just make them a meal, right? No, that's what Abraham did. Again, cultural differences um, are, are here, that, 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 that hospitality was so highly valued in the ancient world. And so what does Abraham do? Look at verses 6 through 8. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah. Again, running. This 100-year-old man running. It's important people. And he said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran, again, ran, ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. 
Then he took curds and milk and the calf he had prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. First thing you notice is how fast he was moving. I've seen things done when important people come to visit. It's a lot like this, isn't it? If you've got someone who's important, if someone high came to your house and someone you valued their opinion and came to your house, you're gonna have that spread laid out, aren't you? You're gonna make sure your house is clean. You're gonna lay the food out, have everything ready, because I can tell you this, if you're just a friend of mine and you're coming over, I'm not making you anything. If I like you a lot, I may order pizza. I might share a bag of chips. I'm not laying out a feast for you. I'm not killing a cow, I don't have one, but I'm not gonna kill one if I had one just for a friend. We don't do that. What Abraham was doing was an ancient custom of showing hospitality to visitors. This hospitality flows into Genesis 19 as well with pretty disastrous results. But it was common of the day. These were no mere weary travelers either. This is a, 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 what I believe a visible manifestation of the Lord standing in front of Abraham. Common hospitality was not enough. He had Sarah use the finest flour and he took the best calf to eat. These were visitors and everyone treated visitors well, but these were very, very important people. Now look what Abraham does at the end of verse eight. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. Does this remind you of anything? Think back again to Genesis chapter three. Satan tempted Eve. Eve sinned by eating of the fruit that God commanded her not to, and then she gave it to Adam. But you know what Adam did before that? He stood by and allowed it to happen. Didn't say a word. The description here in chapter 18 is not an accident. It's only been a few chapters in the story of Genesis since we've read about the fall. First two humans ate something, and then they hid from the presence of God. Do you see what's happening here? That they did something sinful, and then they hid from God. Here is the exact opposite. Abraham is eating a meal with the Lord himself. This is a reminder of what Adam and Eve could have had, or what they did have. Now, what's most amazing to me is the importance of God coming to dine with Abraham here. Think through the Old Testament. 400 years after this happened, they sh- people, Abraham's descendants, shared a covenant meal with the descendants, with their uh, relatives, their family, the, the people of God, on the eve of the fulfillment of the covenant of the law. A meal. 400 years later, what happens 1,600 years later, the new covenant was remembered even better when Jesus sat with his followers and said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What we did today, what we partook today, has its roots all the way back to Genesis chapter 18. This is not a new invention. This is sitting together, gathering when we're together and we share a meal. In chapter 18, God comes and shares a meal with Abraham. It also foreshadows what's going to happen in the end, too, when we, when we stand before the Lord and Jesus has prepared the feast for us to eat. This is a pattern that happens over and over again in Scripture. And then in verses 9 and 10, we see God's promise reconfirmed. They said this, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. This woman for almost 90 years has been named Sarai. Her name is Sarah, and these visitors knew that. It's another reason why I believe these visitors were the, the Lord and, and, and angels. But the question that I had in my head as I'm reading this is, why did God stay silent for 13 years? That's a long time. And now he's silent for 13 years, and then now he repeats the same promise twice in the matter of a few months. Why? Yeah, the Bible has instances of repetition. We see this over and over. It's to emphasize importance. Here, God is reminding Abraham of the promise again. Do, do you think that Abraham would have forgotten it? I don't. None of us would have forgotten a promise where the Lord, after what we've seen happen in the first few chapters of Genesis, we've seen God work in wonderful ways, and we've seen this promise be repeated over and over. We would have never forgotten that. But let me ask you this. Fast forward to today. If you're a Christian, has there ever been a time that you neglect to keep the gospel at the center of everything that you do? It's not a matter of forgetting the covenant for Abraham or us forgetting the gospel. The promise of God should have been at the center of everything that Abraham did. For us, the gospel must be at the center of everything we do. We, we don't do anything as a church or a body of believers if, if it somehow veers away from our mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world. Yes, we can do a lot of different things, but if it doesn't have the gospel at its core, it's not worth doing. But we've all failed at this. We've not forgotten the gospel, but we have a tendency to forget the impact that it has on our daily lives. Think of it this way. I tell my children multiple times every day how much I love them. And the older they get, the more annoyed they are at me. And I tell them I love you, I love you, and I tell them I over and over again. Sometimes I get nothing back, sometimes I may get, okay, I know. Sometimes, the lucky days, I'll get I love you too, Dad. But I tell them over and over again how much I love them. It's important for me to remind them that I love them, even when they are disrespectful or disobedient. They need to hear that I love them over and over so they know that I'm still their dad no matter what they've done. Church, we need to hear the gospel over and over again. We need to be reminded that God loves us over and over again. We need to be reminded that we are part of God's story now over and over again. And we need to be reminded that no matter what we've done, God still welcomes us over and over again. And Abraham needed to hear the covenant promise over and over again. Some may say this is overkill. The statement that I've heard about stuff that we say, because we, we put gospel-centered in front of everything that we do, right? We, we have gospel-centered preaching, gospel-centered discipleship, gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered ice cream, and I don't know, everything gospel-centered, right? Some get tired of it and say it's overkill. But Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, when you were saved from your sins by the grace of God, you heard the gospel presented and you responded in faith. For many of us, we heard the gospel many times before we responded. And our faith doesn't turn into something mature the moment that we do this, does it? We continue to grow 
And that comes from hearing the gospel preached every week and lived in the lives of people around you. So Abraham needed to be reminded. Well, now Abraham and Sarah hear the promise repeated, and then in verses 11 and 12, Sarah reacts. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Sarah's about 90 years old. And with every passing day, the idea of her having a child seems more and more ridiculous. Jesus wouldn't arrive in human form for another 2,000 years, so we hadn't yet seen a a virgin birth yet. So what are they going to do? Sarah and Abraham are gonna have to conceive the natural way. Uh, She's almost 90, Abraham's almost 100. Sarah is well past the age of enjoying the the physical fruits of marriage. The the promised son will not be born of a virgin. Verse 11, it says that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. It's obvious, she's 90. What this means is that Sarah is long past menopause. There's no chance, right? Not a chance in the world that this is gonna happen. I don't know any 90-year-old woman who's thinking about having a baby. It just doesn't happen. It's physically impossible. This is why she was driven to to use Hagar as a baby factory, that that she knew the promise from God, but she said, it's not going to happen with me, so I've got to figure out a way to make it happen. Sarah laughed to herself when she thought of having a child. She knew the promise, but she couldn't see that there was any way. It's the same kind of laugh we saw in Genesis 17, 17, when Abraham laughed. It's a reaction that we would give if God promised us something that we knew was physically impossible. But hear me. How often, how many times do we need to hear God say, I understand it's impossible for you, but I am the creator of things that are impossible. Do we need to be like Job? Where where God says, where were you when I created all this stuff? Who are you to question me? God created everything. There's nothing that's too hard for him. Nothing is impossible for God. And, And many of us need to hear that right now, that there is nothing that is impossible for God. Even if we can't do it, even if we can't figure it out, if we can't solve things, that God is still stronger than all of those things we can't do. We have the benefit of the completed Bible. Abraham didn't, so we can look back and see all of the impossible things that God has done throughout history. He spoke through a donkey and a bush on fire. He made the blind to see and the paralyzed to walk. He became man to live for us and to die in our place. God's entire story is one miracle after another. And even in Abraham's story, there are things that he couldn't do that only God could do. So Sarah still thinks through this and she laughs. The Lord was facing in the other direction. She's behind. It's hard to hear, but it's the Lord. She laughed to herself. So so look at verses 13 and 15 to see how God answers. The Lord said to Abraham, you can see this happening. Sarah's behind the Lord. The Lord looks over to Abraham and said, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. 
So Sarah's back there. The Lord's talking to Abraham. Sarah then chimes in. Sarah said, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And the Lord said, no, you did laugh. It's not just a person visiting. A.W. Tozer, pastor uh, in Chicago and in Canada, said this. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every, every plurality and all pluralities, in all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. Praise God for that. That God knows everything. There's not one inch of this entire universe that God has not explored, that God doesn't understand, that God doesn't intimately know. It's all his. Two things have brought me great comfort in life. God knows everything. And God is in control of everything. There have been moments in my life where I remember these two truths and it was the only way that I was able to make it through. A person who's not a Christian will, will think about God's omniscience and his sovereignty and will, it will often make them do one of two things, either be frightened of God or they will hate God. Realizing that God knows everything means that he knows your thoughts, he knows your motivations, and what you do when no one's watching. But for the Christian, this is not frightening at all. Knowing that God is still God means that we can rest in him. We know, we still know that he sees our, our sin, but he also sees Christ in us, and he sees that Christ is bigger and better and stronger and greater than our sin. God's power comforts me because I know that I belong to the one who's stronger than any evil. And then in verse 14, God says this to Abraham regarding Sarah. He says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? If you dig through the, the Hebrew word for too hard, you could translate it as many different things, and it all makes sense. Too marvelous, too wonderful, too extraordinary. You can insert those, it makes, still makes sense. So the question that I kept thinking through was, do I need to ask myself that daily? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Your family member who's not a Christian, you want them saved? Is anything too hard for the Lord? God's power is enough to save that person. Struggling with a particular sin, is anything too hard for the Lord? I almost want to write that up on, the, on the, 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 the wall back here and just put, is anything too hard for the Lord? And just say, that's our motto now. That we live by that. That is our lifeblood. We breathe that. I think we often believe, though, a few lies about God with actually trying, without actually trying. Sometimes we view God as a genie, there to help us when we need him, but it kind of goes away when we don't. There were two authors, um, within the last 15 years maybe, wrote a, a book, and, and they looked at the spiritual lives of American young people and they came up with this, it's not very difficult, 
when you kind of break it down, but the, the idea, they said the number one religion of young people in the United States today is what they call moralistic therapeutic deism. And the idea is that most people believe in God, that's deism, and that God wants people to be nice to each other, that's moralism. And to them, God is only necessary when we have a problem that he can fix, that's the therapeutic part. That's the idea, that God, there is a God, he wants us to be nice to each other, and he's there if we need him. That's the extent of most people's understanding of God. It's not correct. To them, the gospel only matters if it makes their life more enjoyable, with less pain and discomfort. Another lie that I've encountered is that God has forgotten people. Uh, When tragedy strikes, we'll often ask, well, where's God, or why did God allow this to happen? It's normal. But it gets problematic if you think that God owes you something. If you think that you deserve a better life because, well, I'm a Christian, so I deserve better. For Sarah, it was a lack of belief that God would fulfill his promises, which caused her to hurt other people. Is anything too hard for God? Instead of God saying this, and this is what we would have said to Sarah had she said the same thing to us, that God didn't say this, I've given you a promise twice, you laughed at it, no more for you. Right, that's what we would have said. Instead, God dealt with her sin, but the promise stayed intact. And as Christians, we, we ought to be grateful for that because within the few minutes that you leave church here today, the chances are you're going to sin. Something's gonna happen. Your kids are gonna be screaming. Your spouse is not gonna be kind to you. Someone's gonna cut you off in the parking lot, right? You're, you're not gonna be pleased and you may think or you may even say something that you shouldn't say. We're gonna sin today. But that sin doesn't break the covenant that God has made with his people. Because God is the one who's given us that covenant. God is stronger than our sin. So our sin has been taken care of by Christ on the cross and that doesn't go away. Praise God for that. Now I hope this journey through this life of of Abraham has been beneficial. It's been encouraging to me. It's a strange statement because these two, Abraham and Sarah, have been the poster children for disobedience, right? They, they over and over have made bad decisions. But where I'm finding encouragement, though, is not in their periodic obedience. The truth is they failed God over and over. Their failures, their sin, is more of an emphasis in their story than their obedience. And we have to be honest, up to this point, they haven't shown themselves to be very obedient. The striking horror of their sin is consistently bigger than their obedience, The question that I ask is the same one that the Lord asks. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Can God give new life to sinners like Abraham and Sarah? Absolutely. He did. I'm pretty sure that the sins that they committed are are more serious than the ones that we've done. But you know what? It doesn't matter what you've done. If we laid all of our sins out on the floor and we put them all in front of us, it doesn't matter what we've done. God is still bigger than those things. That no matter what sins you've committed, no matter how disrespectful or disobedient that you've been or how uh, your lack of trust in God's promises have been, God is still bigger than that. The forgiveness is still there. God promises forgiveness, forgiveness to those who trust in him. The world has rejected Jesus at nearly every turn, but do you know what God is going to do? Look at Revelation chapter 22. 
Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were, uh, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. If that sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden, it's because it is. The bookends of the Bible starts in the garden and it ends in the garden. It's a restoration of God's creation back to the way that it was at the beginning. Only this time it's better because in the middle of that city is Jesus sitting on the throne. No more sin, no more death, no more suffering. Jesus ruling his creation. No more pain, no more heartache. All of these things are a result of sin. And Abraham's story is full of sin like this and depravity. But church, those things are not what defines Abraham. What defines Abraham is who he had faith in. This is something that we all need to hear too. That, that we could go and we could sit and think through all of the bad things that we've done or the bad things that we've thought or, or all of the crimes against God that we've committed and we can start to define ourselves that way. Well, I'm this, I'm that. No, if you're a Christian, you are a child of the living God. Remind yourself of that every single day. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of the promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Listen, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That city that Abraham is looking forward to, the one that has the Christ at the center, is the one that we will be living in forever with Jesus. Abraham believed in Jesus 2,000 years before Jesus became a man, and Abraham's faith is what brought him to a right relationship with God. And it's the exact same faith that you and I need to be brought in a right relationship with God too. Our sin demands justice and the only thing that we deserve is God's perfect wrath. But Jesus came to live a perfect life and to give us his righteousness and then he suffered on the cross so that God's wrath could be poured out on him. God poured out the wrath on the spotless lamb so that our sins could be taken away and washed clean. Abraham had faith that this would happen. He had faith that the covenant God made with him would find its fulfillment in the Messiah that would come. Was Abraham a miserable failure? Yes. He sinned and it hurt people. Did Abraham deserve God's grace through the covenant? Nope. But through the wondrous grace of God, Abraham had faith and he was seen as righteous. Righteous in the eyes of God, not because of how good he was, but because of how great Jesus is. This is God's plan, God's story since the beginning. That Genesis 3, that the Messiah would come and crush the head of the serpent. And this whole story of the Bible, it unfolds and it culminates when Jesus takes his place at the center of the city. The same grace that is promised to everyone is the same grace that Abraham received. Whoever believes in Jesus is a promised eternal life. 
We are brought into the covenant family of God, made sons and daughters of the king. I can end with this. If you're stuck trying to be good enough, stop it. If you're trying to do more good deeds to impress God, quit. Stop. If you are on this, this hamster wheel where you feel like you can't get off and you keep trying to do better and do better but nothing is happening, stop. Rest in the one that Abraham rested in. Find your rest in the only one who can give it. Would you pray with me?